asking clever people stupid questions in an entirely unraffable format. This is not just academic praxis. This is lol my praxis. I think that's what we were getting known for because one of my friends was like, isn't that where academics go to kill their careers? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> where their careers go to die. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Very good. That's the legacy that we want to build for ourselves. I thought that was Twitter, to, to be honest, that people just go on Twitter to, you know, out themselves in certain ways and get really angry and involved with things that they shouldn't. It's when people double down on their, they, they, they do something bad, then get called out on it, and then they're like, no. I'm not cancelled. Strong Naomi Wolf vibes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and now I'm just going to become a COVID denier nightmare. And I'm still going to mention how they were wrong about my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were wrong about my book and a glo- global pandemic. Yeah, the, the two are interconnected. If you can't see it, you're just stupid. <laughs> That'll be the next level of tweet. Matthew Sweet has spread COVID lies. Matthew Sweet is 5G. Think about it. The only logical progression. That gives us the excuse to um, at Matthew Sweet when we release this uh, podcast. <laughs> this really sensible podcast that claims that you're 5G. Please listen. Please share. Please share widely. Thank you. Please retweet if you endorse. Rate and subscribe. Thanks. Leave us a review on iTunes. Have you ever wondered why it's blind peer review? They don't want you to know. Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. This week we're speaking with Dr. Andrew McInnes from Edgehill University and the principal investigator of The Romantic Ridiculous, a massive AHRC funded project that aims to shift romantic studies from the sublime to the ridiculous. When not laughing at Coleridge or teaching 18th century women's writing, Andrew is interested in poetic cats, substance abuse and why we should all fear Southern Europe. Is that, is that accurate? Why should we fear Southern Europe? Oh, is that like, is that an Austin thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did our research. Yeah. Slash, slash a Byron thing, right? You <laughs> wander around. Byron. I mean, Byron embraced Southern Europe, but did he embrace it a bit too much? Possibly. Mm. Mm. But Austin didn't, right? Austin would have voted for Brexit. Is, it, is that what we're saying? I, I'd like to think that she didn't, but she possibly would. I, I'd like to think that if she did, she'd she'd regret it rather than do a Naomi Wolf and double down. I'm a little bit like I'm not a big Austin person, but even I am ashamed that you used those two in the same sentence. You <laughs> <laughs> no, have some Austin love if you feel the need to defend Austin. Austin would not be a gammon. That needs to be on a t-shirt. No, 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 no. Austin can be a gammon, and just bear in mind that I'm vegetarian. Austin can be a gammon, but Naomi Wolf will not be Austin. Yeah. Like, Naomi Wolf is in a category alone. I think we're all, we're all on the same page. What I really enjoyed about that bio when we were reading out is like, big, happy grin at the mention of the fantastic project that you're doing, and then very confused, sad face at the final line of fearing Southern Europe. You're like... Where have they found this? <laughs> what is going on? I'm on the wrong podcast. I'm not a Brexiter. I, I, I want to go to Southern Europe. I miss Southern Europe. I miss Southern Europe so much. I wish I could be Byron. I would just want to dally through the hills and go to a vineyard. Like, come on. And just have it rain and then just tell some ghost stories and just totally, like, outshine all the men. Yeah, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> That's the goal, man.
That is the goal. Yeah. We like to ask people. No, we don't. We like to produce a jingle. We do produce a jingle. It's a curated jingle. So you have to guess. This one might be harder than normal because it was quite hard for us to come up with one. Um, (laughs) About why this song. So it's name that tune. And then why is it relevant? To you. I've been practicing this all afternoon. 10 minutes before we came on air. Because we discussed that it might be hard to do. It's quite hard. It's quite a slow one. It's not very good for the kazoo. Yeah, that was shit. That's all I've got. (laughs) I can't do it. Think of Marks and Spencers. It's the Marks and Spencers jingle. But what is that song? I still don't know. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I didn't know either, to be fair. It's very abstract. Okay, so this, it's by Fleetwood Mac. Oh, wow. Albatross. <gasps> so Coleridge. There yes, go. okay, good. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. Do you know how hard it was? We were looking up being like, okay, what What could we, like, is Send in the Clowns? Is that better? Oh, is that romantic? Like, is, that re- is that ridiculous? Like, I'll help us it. here. I'll, I'll go away and listen to the Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> it's very soothing. You want to be on a beat. Albatross is very good. I like Coleridge, Lonely Inch Mariner. We love this. That's making me sound like like a hardcore Coleridgean. My favourite thing about Coleridge's Albatross is that it stars in a brilliant children's book called Goth Girl and the Ghost of a Mouse. And the Albatross is called Coleridge and follows Frankenstein's monster around the Arctic. This sounds like a great book. It's a great book. Having listened to your podcast, I'm taking issue with I think it was in your conversation with Emma, although or possibly someone else, where you were dissing children's literature. And I would say a lot of children's literature is great. And Goth Girl and the Ghost of a Mouse is like aimed at your romanticist or um, gothic scholars. It's got like, like basically, uh, Goth Girl is Ada Goth and she's very heavily based on Ada Lovelace. Lord Goth is very heavily based on Byron, but um, after his wife dies, he goes a little bit mad and he sort of takes his anger and angst out, not on a range of other women, but by shooting um, garden ornaments. And then the line is like, yes, that's right. He's mad, bad and dangerous to gnomes. <laughs> I mean, that's how it should be, really. Oh, I, uh, that would be I a- love it. That's brilliant. I mean, I, I would also like to just contest this in terms of, one, thank you for listening to previous episodes. That means a lot. No one else has. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but two, I'm pretty sure in that one, we were talking less about children's literature being shit and more that children writing literature were shit. That was also to wind Emma up because she works with Vanalia. It might surprise you to know that sometimes we formulate our questions around what's going to annoy people the most. (laughs) Emma just agreed. It's a line between sort of like devil's advocate, bullying, (laughs) who knows? We screwed up the jingle, but... Now you have a chance to kind of reclaim it a little bit and tell us a really boring fact about yourself as a way of introducing yourself really even more. Boring. I've been thinking about it and I decided because I'm, I'm wearing this that my brother-in-law made me. It's a t-shirt which says in German, well, I'm going to translate the German because I can't say German, but it says Dr. Beard runs and it was my, it's my running t-shirt. And I have proudly been, I'm going to stand up, you get sort of full crotch shot. Oh, <laughs> yes. It's been a long time. <laughs> I've, been, um, I've been in athleisure since March, and, and my, my ambition mm-hmm. now is never to go back to wearing trousers. That's a solid ambition. I am also in athleisure from the waist down. Um, I'm, I'm wearing my Wuthering Heights sweatshirt because I taught it today because I'm a dickhead that matches uh, for what I'm teaching. I didn't sing, though, which is a, a big thing. No, I didn't. I really I, I kept it in. 
It felt awkward over Zoom. <laughs> you should have just lent into it. Yeah, I got staged right. Wuthering Heights is my long-term karaoke song. Impersonation plus choreography is very important to me. Anyway, onto you being boring and not me being boring. So we've got two things. One is that you have a beard and the other is that you run. Okay, great. Yeah, that, those are quite boring things. But would you say that they're central to you as a person? Like, did you pick up running this year or like this past, this long 2020 that we're having? Start running. For a long time, I didn't do any exercise. And then a couple of years ago, I lost seven stone. It was a lot of stone. A lot wow, of stone. Well, that's, um, a big, that's a lot of stone. And I, I liked running in the gym. And I liked running in the gym because the gym told me how many calories I was supposedly burning. And I feared the outside. My friend, um, Bob Nichols. <laughs> like all good romantic studies scholars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who we can now add in as well as, what's his name, Matthew Sweet. He was like, oh, no, you'll like running outside. Right? Running outside is good. It's like fresh and refreshing and lovely. And that's like, that's all of the things that I don't like about the outside. <laughs> it, 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 freshness and loveliness. Fucking cloth the romanticist. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm a weird fit for a romanticist. I, I agree with you. No, no, no. You're perfect that you like the idea of nature. You don't like nature. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Then I did start running outside. And in, in lockdown one, I was up to doing running 10Ks. But then <gasps> lockdown two, two and a half, three... I'm kind of yeah, where are we back now? inside on my exercise bike. I tried to be a person that got into running during the first lockdown, but I actually had quite a serious knee issue. So that I, I, I got away with it. Actually, I didn't have to do the couch to 5k. It was great. Everyone was doing it. I really, I really resented there was that movement for a movement. There was like a trend for a while of like, oh, five pounds for 5k goes to the NHS. I'm like, bitch, I pay tax. Like I already fund the NHS. I don't need to go running to help the NHS. Like maybe stop posterity. There you go. I'll just lie on the couch more. The NHS thing is difficult, isn't it? Because like I support the NHS and believe it's a a very worthwhile thing, but like I'm not clapping for it because it should be paid for rather than sort of nostalgically. But you know, it was really inspirational having an old man drag himself around his garden like honestly you know you you had a knee injury you're not in your 90s alex like what the fuck like you could have done more all right don't you speak captain ages. tom captain tom saved the nhs i think it's re- like it's great they he raised a lot of money this is really wonderful but equally we should reassess a society that thinks it's okay to fund something that we're supposedly already funding by having a 90 year old man my question is, how how expensive was that bespoke firework they made of Captain Tom? And why could they not have funded that into the NHS? Think about it, Captain Tom. We've completely gone off topic, um, well, which is great. Topic? Me being boring. Who knows? Yeah. We're still, we're still in the big area of, of, of running. I was going to ask a question about bearded running. Is there an issue with like... Wind resistance? I'd say, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm very amateur. This is not pro running. I'm not thinking about it. Oh, for a second, it. I thought you were very amateur with the beard. I was like, it looks quite, like, well maintained. <laughs> beard is pro. The running is amateur. Do you get loads of those, like, man kits for Christmas from people who don't know what to get you something? Yeah. And it's those, like, little tins of, like, beard oil and, like, clippers. Yeah, be- yeah. Beard oil, I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't Do really not partake. I just think it causes acne. Just because no one can see it because it's hidden by the beard. Like, I can I can feel the spots. It's a lovely shroud. <laughs> wow. I, I was hoping to come on here and become an influencer, and I'm just killing all of my dreams. <laughs> I'm not going to be holding beard oil at anyone. I mean, I, I kind of think in some ways, like, romantics didn't really have beards. Do you think there's something there in terms of there's a lot of, like, nubile faces, like, lots of, yeah, like, open faces in, in, in romantics. I'm trying to think, like, 19th century seems to be more where the beards come in. 
Mm-hmm. Has anyone done this? Someone should do a cultural history of beards. There's definitely they probably a have. They've definitely done that. I'm I don't sure know why that. I said that. What a stupid question. I'm sure there is, but uh, yeah, beards. Beards are not really a thing in the Romantic period. You're right. Mm. As far as mm. I'm trying to think of any bearded person, I can't think of one. Dorothy Wordsworth. <laughs> <laughs> That's why she refused to have her portrait done. <laughs> I mean, we, she's become an unofficial, I don't know, mascot of this podcast. I don't know if you've listened to some I of the other ones. How. I don't know why. Like, she's so uncontentious. And yet here she is once again, popping up out of nowhere. <laughs> We had Alice Tarbuck on, who in our third episode, who was ranting about how boring she was and how she's the worst. And then we've had Joe Taylor came on and defended Dorothy Wordsworth because she does Dorothy Wordsworth cosplay. Yeah. And now you're on, and we're again talking about fucking Dorothy Wordsworth. And like, I don't know anything about her. Like, yeah. <laughs> she's apart such- from the fact that she has a beard and she deals drugs. <laughs> A film is waiting to happen of Dorothy the bearded drug smuggler. Oh my god, I would so oh watch it though. <laughs> yes, this is my version of history. Have you seen uh, Pandemonium or heard of Pandemonium? No. It's a it's like a very trippy film about the writing of the lyrical ballads, but it has scenes like mm. Coleridge flapping through some muddy water with a nuclear power plant sort of happening behind him, and um, I think. I think Samantha Morton plays Dorothy Wordsworth and Samantha Morton is awesome and uh, and does like a punk version of Dorothy Wordsworth for you. This sounds yes. amazing. Why have I not watched what <laughs> this is great. Wordsworth turns into like the villain. He's like they they go hard for Wordsworth is a French spy or no a, a an anti-French spy so he's sort of working for the British government to shop all his friends. Mm, yeah. That feels quite on brand. I don't know why. He's also a Brexiteer, right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. big time, oh, yeah. big time. Brexiteer denying the fact that he had like a French lover with child across. Yeah, of course. Well, Nigel Farage wasn't even married to a German wife, isn't that the thing? And applied for a German passport, I think. Yeah, of course he yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Of course he did. So Wordsworth is Nigel Farage. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, that's that. That's a spin on. That would be cool. Colorist Tommy Robinson. <laughs> You're welcome for that one. Next project. Please cite an old future project. We always ask also for your Tinder bio. Academic Tinder Academic bio. Tinder bio. Just got a, got a highlight that is the academic the, the academic Tinder bio. This isn't an elaborate seductive. Yeah. I denied all knowledge of Tinder though, didn't I? To be fair, he has already shown us his crotch, so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Start as you mean to go on. This in. in the email I sent when you asked for the Tinder bio, I was like, what about personal ads? Bring those back. This is the, this is a book of London Review of Books personal ads. Amazing. As in like the ones that like saw you on the subway on the like Waterloo. I'm just going to randomly open up. So this is not the best oh, one. Yes, yes, Damn it. Do all relationships have to end with a trip to the emergency room and a tube of Savlon? Romantic man 36 seeks pretty lady to cook the dinner, bring him beer and surrender her right to orgasm. Box number 2741. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I'm horrified. I love it. Bad next exit. After that, it was a life of emotional service stops and never ending circuits on Northwest Ring Roads. Are you my final little chef or an emergency pull up on the hard shoulder of despair? Man 32 cries like a girl and phones his mother a lot. Box number 5, <laughs> Junction 13. Incredible. Wow. I love them. I love them so much. This is great. Little Chef is a great callback. It's... I feel like I haven't seen Little Chef in years. I think uh, they all closed now. They always feel, when you go into them, it feels like you're going back to the 1970s. So oh, all, for sure. You've all gone back home. It's like, um, <laughs> I think there's like, well, there was pre-pandemic, like maybe like two Wimpy Burgers still. 
it's, mm. it's like that that that's a little shelf little shelf little chef little aesthetic. shelf it's like wimpy burger and yeah it always reminds me as well of like my mum uh used to tell this story about shout out Faye, one of our only like dedicated listeners she used to go on childhood days out to the service station at Washington uh, along the road from Durham and it took them 10 minutes and then they crossed over the bridge and then they had lunch on the other side and crossed over again. It was the best day out she had as a child. I mean, I had something very similar. My mum would take us around on a bus and like we'd sit at the front of the bus because it was basically a roller coaster and we would just sit there for probably like an hour or two hours just just going in loops and she would sleep. Simpler times. Or... Yeah. My mum had a birthday party on the North to South Shields Ferry. It takes 20 minutes and they had a packet of crisps and a bottle of pop. Wow. <laughs> wow. Faye. Yeah, Faye, good ones. You've savvily sideswiped, sidestepped. What is your t- your academic Tinder bio? Well, we haven't actually had it. The one I came up with is fancy a threesome, you, me, and my imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, strong. Yeah, Very strong. Good. I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's We all feel it. I think we're all polyamorous oh, in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> well, academics are by ne- definition polyamorous. You love, you love my imposter syndrome. Yes, I think yes. that's absolutely true. It's, it, it never goes away. No, never. Unless you are the worst type of academic, which is... Naomi Wolf. Yes. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do the, the usual, oh, the straight white man bashing, but I, I don't think I can do that here. <laughs> no, that was one of my options for a boring fact. I'm not even your first straight white man, I think. No, and he did actually say that he was a boring fact. I love that both straight white men we've had on the podcast want to be just like, me. Yeah. I, 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 I am the fact. I am the worst. <laughs> Which right. I, I kind of like. Like, mm-hmm. like the other, we did have a discussion about uh, our gender balance, and then we were like, "Nah, it's fine." But it's both reassuring and slightly crushing to hear that even after getting a massive AHRC grant, that imposter syndrome doesn't go away. No, um, you just spend your days wondering, sort of, where the work is that you should be doing, and when when that's going to happen. Why me? Right here, I am stuck in the middle. My imposter syndrome. Let's segue. Let's move away let's, from that. Let's do <laughs> um, Segu. Um, so according to Edmund Blackadder, there's nothing intellectual about wandering around Italy in a big shirt trying to get laid. So uh, why is the romantic ridiculous? Yes. <laughs> what does Blackadder know about what it means to be intellectual? That's how I would respond to that. Like, wandering, wandering around Italy... I'm sure Byron did other things than trying to get laid. Which part? <laughs> like some good poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is actually just the underlying reason for anyone to write any poem. Yeah. Is um. Oh, this is yeah. this is a segue, but um, one of my favourite um. A segue. One of my or digression, basically. One of my favourite <laughs> in teaching. Well, it was two moments, like separated by a number of weeks. It was they were. It was a fir- first year. I can't remember the first text that we were doing. Um, she was like a, a joint history and English student, and she sort of threw down the book in disgust, whatever it was that we were reading. And she was like, "Why is English literature obsessed with sex and death? Or why is everything, everyone in English literature, obsessed with sex and death?" And I, I think my response was like, "Like, is what else is there?" Um, <laughs> about six weeks later, we were doing the Lord of the Flies. And she was uh, the same student was looking at the um, the bit where they do like horrible things to a pig's head, and she was like, 
it's this is like the rape of the female. This is what the pig represents. And I was like, oh, you've come so far from like why is <laughs> <laughs> everything about sex and death to the pig is a representation of sex in this sort of famous mm-hmm, mm-hmm. novel. I love those moments. You just say like, oh, I'm so proud. <laughs> yeah, like um, we got there. Like, Fyron was looking for sex and death in Southern Europe, which is what we all want to do. So like, why look down our nose at him? I mean, but we should though. Yes, it's true that he. Uh, he wore many layers of clothing because he was a bit rotund. Is that is that right? Maybe you know more than me about the, the, the sex lives of uh, Lord Byron. I'm trying to remember something that I probably half heard. Um, and then, I'm... Why does this always happen? Every time you introduce a new piece of information, you're like, I half heard this one place sometime <laughs> when. Because I don't retain information in a normal way. I don't have a short-term memory, Alex. <sighs> <laughs> I'm neurodivergent. Um, what? So I just remember the bits that I find funny. So that mm-hmm. might be total irrelevance or something that's an outright lie, but I found it funny, so I decided that it was real. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I think that Byron used to wear uh, several corsets and like oh, yeah. sort of to make him look more svelte. <gasps> that makes him more lovable. <laughs> exactly. Oh, what a lovable Byron. Oh, what a little Byron. Yeah, I mean, no, he was a terrible fuckboy, but like <laughs> also lovable. Terrible fuckboy, but has insecurities, so he's yeah. all right. You've mentioned my sort of massive AHRC grant a couple of times, and it's when I started out, I I, I sort of picked. I picked Coleridge more or less randomly. It's kind of ridiculous. I'll have to, so hot I'll right have now, that Coleridge. And then, as like as I read more and more, as I read more about him, like after I'd submitted the um the. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, oh, we've oh, all been there. One, he, oh, he's he's more lovable than I imagined, and also he's he sort of thought of himself as ridiculous in in a way which is quite again quite quite lovable. So he's he sort of had this sort of awkward self awareness of himself as this sort of entirely ridiculous person. So is, do you think like ridiculousness and imposter syndrome are connected? Then? Definitely linked. Yes, the romantic ridiculous is a whole project where I, I can secretly be writing about my own. Um, the HRC is it's instead of paying for therapy. <laughs> I mean, I read a tweet that literally read, "Your PhD or your research is what you should have worked through in therapy." And you know, as someone who did a PhD on illiteracy and learning difficulty, because she's dyslexic and has a thing about not reading that might have hit quite hard there might have been some resonances there I mean I do like that but sometimes as well Louise like it's like reading a fortune cookie you don't have to agree with the tweet just because it's there (laughs) you don't have to base your life around a tweet you're all right you can write about other things I free you I spend a lot of time on the internet Alex I think it's too late for me flouncy flouncy my shirt's so sexy it hurts Talking about like massive fuckboys in the romantic period, <laughs> if you were to rank the big six mm-hmm. in terms of fuckboyness, where would you rank them and why? Byron, because he, he just he's like lead fuckboy. I think we've we've agreed we've agreed this. I can imagine some modern day fuckboys wearing several corsets to keep themselves oh, yeah. tucked in. Or we're gonna start a fashion. We're that influential. Absolutely. Shelley. Um, oh, interesting. Similar reasons. Corsets? <laughs> Did he wear corsets? No. My image of Shelley is like, a, a, he, he'd wear like very frilly shirt. Flounces would, would occur in his dress and mannerisms, is, is what I would suggest. And then... Flounces and a calcified heart. 
I mean, there's also the bit that, you know, was he left his wife for Mary and wasn't his wife pregnant at the time and then she died? He committed suicide, yeah. That's pretty fuck boy. There's a book by Janet Todd called Death and the Maidens, and I'm pretty sure Shelley is supposed to be death in that title. He kind of left the trail of destruction and then died. And then I think his liver. It's like less romantic than the heart. They they think heart is not a thing. You know, she just kept like a a bit of her dead lover's or dead husband's liver about her person. Let's be honest, like the heart is also gross. Like neither of yeah. these things are yeah. actually that romantic. They're just like flesh. Keeping your lover's calcified heart has kind of goth credentials. Mad goth credentials. Mad, mad goth credentials is, is is sort of some people's life goals. But like keeping a bit of your lover's like hard liver. Yeah, liver. I mean, mm, I wonder if symbology of that liver in like early modern was like sex i think that the sex and the liver were like an early modern thought this is me again half remembering half memory <laughs> you can make anything up about the early moderns that's i mean fine. it's fine i don't know anything about the early moderns that's why we don't have many early moderns on the podcast because i know my weaknesses um <laughs> but there's also the thing that um they supposedly mary shelley and uh Percy shelley their first date was on her mum's grave. Yeah. She lost her virginity on her mum's grave type thing. Which... I love how you call that their first date. Like, <laughs> and, and then I, you're like... Uh, well, I, I did the second version. That's my approach to history. Which is just major goth point. She was aiming for major goth. Oh, yeah, totally. I wish as a teenager, because obviously I was like a goth or I wanted to be. But then I realised that I was ginger, so it didn't really work. <laughs> but then... I didn't realise until relatively recently, until I looked at pictures of Mary Shelley, that she was ginger. So had I made that connection, it oh. would have been like more goth life for me. We need to put this out into the sphere. People, more people need to know. <laughs> more ginger goths. Oh, sorry, we to- I totally derailed that. So Byron Shelley. Byron Shelley. Coleridge was a terrible person to his wife and kids. He sort of just, he fell out with his wife. He <laughs> went on holiday. One of bastards. his children died. He didn't <laughs> come home. so awful. Um, yeah, they're bad people. And then, you know, he was already married to someone called Sarah. He confusingly fell in love with another person called Sarah. Oh, I don't know what that's like to fall in love with somebody who's got the same name. It's difficult. And it's also terrible to fall in love with someone called Sarah. Definitely my <laughs> wife's name. <laughs> this is why Coleridge is the third fuckboy of, yeah, he definitely of, is. of romantic poetry. And then, Oh, who we've got after that? Wordsworth has to be there. He, you know, Brexiter. Made by Nigel Farage in our film. Oh, who's who's left? Keats and Blake. Blake. Those are the six. Mm-hmm. At the end of this, we're going to get to this is the problem with romanticism because, like, fuck dead white guys. There's there's mm-hmm. a world of romanticism out there that we should talk about. But uh, Keats or Blake? Keats or Blake? I don't like Keats. So I'm going to put Keats as five, and then we're saving Blake for six. Interesting. Why don't you like Keats? Oh, he just is it because he's really whiny? Yeah. Like, we get you're dying, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Although, I had like a table talk thing, which is named after a romantic period genre as part of the romantic ridiculous. And one of the speakers there, Dana Moss, yes, remembered her whole name. Uh, We can have her as well as Matthew Sweet and Bob Nicholson and Naomi Wolf. No, no, no. No, we're not going to. We're not tagging that. Oh, we could get blocked. I'd love to be blocked on Twitter by Naomi Wolf. That would be good. That would be fun. She did a great talk about Keats's Isabella or the Pot of Basil. Her argument was the Pot of Basil was like an active agent in the love affair between Isabella and whoever her male lover is in that poem. You can see I'm a really good romantic. I know all of these details. Basil took on like vampiric resonances. He was like, it, it was sort of sucking the life out of the man and kind of 
making the woman go kind of green and, and willowy. And it's like, I want the little drop of horrors version of Isabella or the Pot of Basil. Fantastic. I mean, that does sound pretty baller. Like, I would watch that, maybe. I'm not a great musical fan. It's shocking we're still friends. Guess who's back? Back, back, back again. Dorothy. He's back. You mentioned that there's more to the romantics than the big fuckboy six. Yes, and another another segue into teaching is that I did I, I overhauled the my romanticism syllabus because I was getting kind of bored with it and I wanted to do it again and I came up with this sort of really I thought it was really a really nifty thing and we were going to look at romantic times I think we were doing sort of looking at it's it's how how it thought about history we wouldn't look at romantic feelings to think about how like sensibility and how it sort of represented emotions and we would look at romantic creatures I came up with romantic animals because I'm interested in cats as you know and an opportunity to talk about gender in romanticism and also children and I was explaining this to to my friend and she was like are you not going to do like places and space and like nature and I was like <laughs> oh yeah oh, that's so dumb though like come on that fucking Abby needs a shout out <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. Mont Blanc again <laughs> oh. yeah we did Mont Blanc again and and Kublacan Xanadu Xanadu another karaoke song oh, of mine should have done that oh shit <gasps> Xanadu would what, be good. That's so fucking stupid, Louise. <laughs> I mean, you could do it now, Alex. I, I no, I'm on the I'm on the spot, and I don't remember how it goes. We'll do it. As, do it as an extra. Xanadu. We'll start again. We'll give you. We'll give you a moment to collect yourself. Xanadu. Okay, okay. Yeah, I could do that. I mean, Louise, whatever happened to your kazoo? Why am I now the kazoo bitch? Like, what's going on? I don't on? know where it is. I think Sarah took it because she hated me. <laughs> <laughs> Our partners have not taken kindly to the kazoo. <laughs> it's surprising in this very small space that we cohabit indefinitely. Lockdown kazoo, not a thing. Not a thing. Should not be. a thing. Yeah. Not a thing. But yeah, anyway, I think romanticism is, is sort of bigger than daffodils and mountains and, and more interesting than We're that. Very so controversial. Sort of thinking about all these things, like it thought about um emotions and feelings in a really interesting way and I wanted to sort of get students to think about that and it thinks about I think it thinks about time and its own period of time really interestingly so it's sort of romanticism is about the spirit of the age is a is a is a sort of phrase that comes out in romanticism in the romantic period and it's it's was even though they didn't necessarily call themselves romantics um they they thought of themselves as a particular time period that was distinct from what came before them Mm. and it was distinct from what came after them and they, they thought really hard about what what it meant to exist in a moment of time that, that they could identify as for them for them and, and 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 as sort of imprinting itself um on them and then what else did i do i can't remember and it's also about bad satire and shitting ducks right yes so that's um that was my wannabe title for a thing that I gave a more official title. Oh, don't worry. It's this title now. Yeah, it's this title now. <laughs> and we'd love you to explain why shitting ducks have something to do with romanticism. Coleridge is one of the people that I think about for the romantic ridiculous, uh, because I thought of him as a ridiculous person, then found out that he felt ridiculous um, himself, which I thought was really sweet. The other person I think of for the romantic ridiculous is a guy that is much less well-known called John Paul Richter, who was a German novelist and satirist and philosopher and he actually sort of 
thought of he he comes up with an idea about what the ridiculous what it means to feel ridiculous and that is the inverse of the sublime so the sublime is about sort of going up mountains or looking at daffodils and feeling at one uh with nature uh ridiculousness is about sort of that experience kind of misfiring or, or failing as well as feeling embarrassed i guess it also sort of makes you laugh at yourself and through laughter sort of join together in it with a group of people and as i prepared the bid and i knew what i wanted to do which was find out how much sort of coleridge knew about john paul richter and he he he, he sort of drew on john paul richter's ideas in his own lectures about wit and humor but he also translates like quite a lot of stuff from john paul richter's writing he was like coleridge was a a Germanophile, I suppose, someone who's really, who was really interested in German philosophy. He translates lots of different Germans, including this John Paul Richter. And his notebooks that were sort of per, his personal diaries um, that he, he kept for most of his adult life are, are full of these sort of little translations of bits of um, John Paul Richter. And one of the few ones that he actually says this is from John Paul Richter is a, a quotation about what it means to do bad satire. And, and sort of bad satire it sort of ignores the virtuous and by ignoring the virtuous makes itself a bad version of the ridiculous. John Paul Richter likens it to a famous wooden duck uh, that was made by a French inventor called Vaucanson. So Vaucanson's automatic duck. The duck was famous for shitting. You you could sort of put food into the duck and it would it would excrete guano or whatever ducks do, bird shit. Uh, and <laughs> His simile, as it were, is is sort of bad satire is like a duck that shits without eating. So it's sort of, it's excrement without nutrition. Ah, okay, so it's, it's not processing just anything, waste it's just shit. As well, it's not doing, it doesn't do anything good for you. You don't get any nutrients. Right, no metabolism of anything going on. Or, yeah, no or, sustenance. Yeah, goodness out of it, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just waste product. So I guess there's, the flip side of that is what does good satire do? And good satire... Takes, takes account of um, mm. virtue and, and it sort of tries to improve the world. And obviously Coleridge was taken by this image of, of a duck shitting. He put it, he, he puts it into translation and credits John Paul for it. But he, there's a range of um, translations where Coleridge is kind of grappling with German humour and trying to also make... Sorry, is that German humour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you vote for Brexit too? But so, what? What then is a good example of good satire, like or bad satire, or shit, shitting duck, duck satire? satire I mean, I guess for sense. them, shitting duck satire is something that sort of it's it's kind of like the it, it's almost like it embodies that sort of spewing out and sort of like miring people in in crap. So it's sort of just I guess it's just it's taking the piss without sort of wanting to get any goodness out of it. Yeah. Ah, so this Ooh, podcast I like interesting. a wooden duck that shits without eating. Yeah, we need to yeah, rename we it. We need to. That <laughs> definitely needs to be on the bio, or if you if you don't mind leaving us I a review, don't like shitting ducks. I yeah. feel like I, yes, I, exactly. I will have had an okay, impact if, if if you do that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you can report this back to me. Uh, I'm sorry, but this is meant to be unreffable. But my secret ambition is to make true, this reference somehow. Like I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ridiculous. This is clearly ridiculous. I think. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's definitely. I have, yeah, to, it's fine. I have to report back to the HRC um, in February, and this is going in there. Podcast experience. Wonderful. I'm really like genuinely delighted. <laughs> in.
made Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. As a man. <laughs> <laughs> this is what can you tell us about 18th century women's writing? As a wow, that's <laughs> that's a loaded question. What are you talking about? It's a perfectly normal question. It's not loaded in any way at all. Not at all. And how Alex wrote it, not me, don't be. Don't be me. Speaking of that, <laughs> There, there was a lot of women's writing in... <laughs> end there. That was great. Don't, don't end it there. It gets neglected. Like my, my, I have a mini rant about the, there was a favourite set of romantic poems, poets, and it was there were seven books, and it was the big six who we've already ranked in order of fuckboyness. Yeah, that's the word. Um, and it added John Clare in, like he was allowed <laughs> oh, in. Oh, John Clare's yeah, not a fuckboy. He loves badgers. We'll have another like working class yeah. mad person in at the end, Dr. Blake. Um, but no, no women were allowed, and like all the, all of the women are also are similarly out of copyright. It's just Faber decided not to do any of them. And there's some like there's great like great women poets who who are really worth reading and who students really get interested in. And I think sort of members of the public who buy Faber collections of poetry would also find sort of interesting and, and inspiring. So Charlotte Smith was a, a big inspiration on Wordsworth and Coleridge, wrote some fantastic poems. Yeah, Beachy come on, Head, Beachy Head, come through. Um, Talk about like, the sublime. Like... It's brilliant. And it's also a lot I about dance, so there you go. Once again. Yeah, it's a, it's a great it's sonnet by movie. Charlotte Covered Smith this. where she encounters a madman on the on the on the cliffs of Dover, I think. Blake. Um, <laughs> and and she it basically ends up like he's mad, but I still wish I still wish I was him because I'm really sad is the is the, the thing. Um, oh, Charlotte. But one of my one of my oh. students way back when made this great argument that it it was basically an embod- it was Charlotte Smith expressing penis envy. I would be rather be mad with a dick than and sad with a badge. <laughs> <laughs> the things I would do if I were mad with a dick. There was there's others like Felicia Hemans, who was a Liverpool lass who wrote fantastic um, poetry, records of women, has a, a great sort of international collection of um, women who generally come to bad ends. Uh, Elizabeth Landon, who did come to a ba- bad end in Africa. She well, she died in mysterious circumstances, but it looked Ooh. like her, her weird lover Ooh. probably killed her. Byron. No. <laughs> Iron didn't get that he just, he just shut up one of his illegitimate kids in a in a convent and she died. Classic. <laughs> Classic fuckboy move right there. Get thee to a nunnery. I guess the, 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 behind the sort of loaded questioning of, of this is, is, is a, my first book, which is about Mary Wollstonecraft, right? I still can't look at the book because... Oh, no. All I, all I can... If, oh, pu- publishing a book is... Stressful. Yeah, right. Rub it in. Well, we know we haven't. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware. I know that I should be working on those fucking edits. Listen, ladies, right when now, you have published fine. a book, uh, <laughs> as a man, as a published man, it's really hard. To be fair, I haven't looked at anything I've published ever. As, as soon as it's done, it's it's don't, it's gone. Don't do it again. Please don't talk to me about it. Thank you. You just, you just see spelling mistakes and grammatical errors everywhere, yeah, and then all everywhere. The sort of um, where your argument could have been better and oh mm-hmm. that's bad there's a chapter in it called my hideous progeny i think but like inspired oh, by mary shelley and and my second supervisor joked like now, now the book is your hideous progeny and i still see it as hideous <laughs> you know that there's the, those hilarious little pithy comments that from supervisors no, like, when, when did your book come out life yeah. 2016 
Something okay, like so that. yeah, that's a good like five year sting. Yeah. Oh no, no, <laughs> at least. I, I want people to buy it, but not necessarily read it. Wow. That's what I. That's what I felt mm-hmm. in the beginning. Like, but purchase my really expensive monograph, but just like just to have it on the bookcase. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Don't touch it or look into. Don't touch it. Don't talk to me about it either. Yeah. I mean, are you a bit raging though because um, you've now missed out on the ability to change the book cover to the statue of Mary Wollstonecraft? When I when Routledge invited me to do a second edition, I, I would think about having the statue. <laughs> With a new introduction and everything. Yeah. Preface preface to the second edition. Although I really like the cover that I actually have, which is a caricature of Mary Wollstonecraft that I think was done after her death. Um, I think she's supposed to look sinister because it's an anti-Jacobin satire, so it's an ultra-conservative attack on on Mrs. Godwin, as she's called. But she has like, a jaunty top hat on and she just looks awesome. It's just one of those things where like conservative satire is supposed to say how terrible something is, but actually makes the the, atta- the person who's being attacked look awesome. Like, I'm pretty sure there was a sort of, there was like a suffragette pub that was doing the rounds, and it was it, it, that was kind of anti-suffragette satire saying, look, if we give women the vote, they'll just go to the pub and have oh, a great God, I wish. time and have an amazing <laughs> life. But it's oh. like, yeah, give them the vote. Cut my life into pieces. This is my research methodology. At a lecture last year, I had the pleasure of hearing Jamaica Kincaid speak. And at one point, she referred to Jane Austen as, um, quote, a greedy bitch. Wow. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Um, to give you a little bit more context for it, uh, Jamaica Kincaid was talking about it in relation to the fact that the majority, most likely, of all of Austen's estate novels are in some way underpinned by the transatlantic slave trade, right? In terms of who's trading what and what kind of commodities are underpinning those different sort of grand houses that everyone has very minor problems in. Um, so thoughts. Austen, greedy bitch, go. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking... so. Mansfield Park is the famous one that thinks about yeah. that actually that explicitly thinks about the, the the consequences of the slave trade, and there's sort of there there are big arguments about sort of what that means in Austin studies, where sort of people people say, I mean, the famous argument in is Edward Said's in sort of Jane Austen and imperialism, which says that yeah. sort of she brings this up only to sort of hush it up under the under the carpet, so the sort of slave trade is there and sort of shows that she sort of understands. Or has knowledge of, of what's going on, but it's sort of so far removed from from the what's actually going on in the world of the novels that that she's sort of complicit in in the world of, of slavery and all the sort of tortures and horrors that that are in, involved there. But kind of, for want of a better word, whitewashes it in 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 her writing. And then there, there was a range of sort of respondents to that, sort of saying that actually she's if if you look at it in the context of abolition literature, she's sort of making sort of much more very subtle but it, uh, and not and maybe not enough ex- of an explicit argument um against slavery but it's certainly sort of showing the moral bankruptcy of the Burton family so that the mm. their in, their their involvement in slavery is perhaps you know for us it's the indicator of their their moral bankruptcy but it's sort of part of their um, sort of hypocrisy and mm. vacuity and um, immorality um, in in Austen's terms. So I, I like Austen. I hope she. Re- I hope if she was alive now, she wouldn't be a a, a Brexiter. Or if she was, she was a reluctant Brexiter who's now who's now sort of ashamed of her her former decisions. Now we framed her really poorly in this in this episode. <laughs> Sorry, Austen. 
<laughs> I'm not sad about it. Because we, we're done digging on Dorothy and we need someone else to focus our attention on. So we'll get someone else in to talk about Austin at some point as well. <laughs> and I think you know, in some of the other novels, she's she's also she's thinking about sort of the consequences of, of slavery as well. Like, um, what's her name? Jane Fairfax and Emma sort of likens being a to being a, a, a slave, which again, is not, um, it's a sort of, it's a very false equivalent, but it sort of says yeah. something about, yeah, where, where Jane Jane is in her sort of very depressed mental state at, at, at that point, and it also, like, I think she could, the, like, she's going to be, she's going to be made to be. Uh, I think Mrs. Elton in that novel wants her to be a governess for someone who's got. He's got like a. I can't. I've forgotten his name because I'm terrible with names and details of things. But he's got like he. He sounds like a pig. So she, Austin deliberately makes him sound like a pig, and that's as. And he's from Bristol, which was a big slave city. So she's basically. Mm-hmm. Austin is quietly saying, "Slavers are pigs." Mm-hmm. which I like so what's the connection then between the slave trade and Dr. Zeus oh wow so, so that's my um, that, I, I, that that abstract could just go horribly um, nowhere because I, I, I submitted it very speculatively to uh, my friend um, Chris Washington and Kate Singer's Black Studies and Romanticism Conference which sounds really like an amazing mm. event uh, but I like I kind of want. I should have just gone and been an observer because that was the, probably the, the 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 better and more noble thing to do. But I kind of wanted to be involved. And before Christmas, I read um, Zong, which is this amazing mm-hmm. contemporary poem about um, the 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 slave ship Zong, where um, the crew infamously chucked people overboard and then claimed it as an insurance loss mm-hmm. and it was one of it was one of the sort of one of the sort of steps towards the abolition of slavery is people's horror at the kind of the the the, the awfulness of, of that action and it's, this is a poem which is made i think entirely out of the legal legal document, document yeah. about um that about the case but she, the the um philip the the author kind of uses words but then also sort of makes a decision to sort of break the words open and find other words within them um to make a story about uh, sort of what's going on, on on the slave ship but one of the lines is sort of i am ham ham i am and i, I, I and i thought it it, it it was kind of macabrely dr zeusian and i think deliberately dr zeusian there's like loads of intertextuality goes on in mm-hmm. the poem so she she's also thinking about like the biblical ham and uh, and ham being used as um the justification for slavery and then she's also mm-hmm. talking about ham as in the sort of meat product ham so the, the sort of implications of cannibalism in, in sort of white people's fears of what's going on in africa but also mm-hmm. white people literally cannibalizing black bodies um or literally and metaphorically um but cannibalizing black bodies and and so having read that in, I think I just I read it all in one sitting because it's such a gripping um, poem. I kind of thought I could I could write about this, and then I want to write about I, I want to sort of smoosh it together with some Coleridge back to Coleridge again and because of the sort of the the compelling nature of the narration of Zong had something to reflect upon the the compelling narrative of the Rome of the Ancient Mariner, which is you know the the, the Ancient Mariner grabs hold of um, the wedding guest and recites the whole poem at him for some. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the wedding guest can't can't escape. Um, so you felt similarly just gripped. Yeah, gripped. And also, I wanted to find one of the things that I struggle with with Coleridge is that I think he is he's he can be really funny in the notebooks, which I'm really interested in uh, in writing about. But his poems aren't known for being like laugh a minute. So trying to find the funny side of Coleridge, and I think there's a sort of there, there's a very black humour at work in some of Coleridge that I think would work really well with. The, the very black humour of Zong. 
They, they could look at this and go, we're not going to let him talk about Dr. Zeus at our serious academic conference. <laughs> Why not, though? Like, I break down all those fucking silly barriers. Like, why not? I think there is something quite interesting in terms of that idea of, like, we haven't really defined what you're interested in in terms of how you're defining the ridiculous, but I think there's definitely something seriously absurd about the Zong massacre and then the way that Philip kind of breaks everything apart and seeks to kind of completely disorient meaning and knowledge and understanding through the way that she just explodes that text and also kind of through that really kind of disrupts what it means to kind of I don't know, categorize and legally define things so i think absurdity and even in the sense that with our moral sensibilities the fact that you can claim insurance on human bodies because it's yeah. a loss of income yeah. as opposed to yeah. you know a loss of life uh, yeah exactly absurd. a commoditization element so, of course it makes sense to be absurd in that respect. I want more things that seem ridiculous that actually make total sense. I think it would it'd be a bad thing to put a sort of barrier around what we can mm-hmm. talk about in academic conferences. And if that means green eggs and ham in the context Let's of the transatlantic slave trade, then it's making a point. <laughs> Part of my plan to ref this ref this whole podcast is I'm, I'm going to have to listen back to what Alex just said and, and cite you in in the paper. That <laughs> yes, about about Zong, that was, that's exactly the sort of thing that I'm grappling with. Although as a bleeding heart liberal, I kind, I want the ridiculous to be like this nice thing or mm-hmm. have a sort of a positive characteristic. So I want I think the definition I came up with it, which is based on John Paul Richter's understanding of it as well, which is an initial misunderstanding based on sort of failure of understanding what another person is experiencing, which leads to a, a change of perspective. And it's the the change of perspective is a sort of full of, I think, like hopeful potential. But there is as lots of people have pointed out to me, there's also like a dark side to ridiculousness, isn't there? Like, the, you know, there's the absurdity of, of, of equating human life as as mm-hmm. sort of stock or, or, or good mm-hmm. in, in the Zong case. Mm-hmm. But there's also that feeling of ridiculousness, which is sort of exclusionary and and humiliating and spiteful. That's part of what I have to sort of grapple with in, in, in working through the romantic ridiculous is to sort of hold like my more hopeful version of it in balance with the darker elements of of the ridiculous otherwise i'm kind of giving a, an overly weighted version of, of of what i mean i want to it's like i guess it's me academic version of me wanting my cake and eating it too it's like i want I want, I want ridiculousness to be seen as this this positive thing that's full of potential and full of yeah ridiculousness as utopian project yeah and then I also want us not to forget that that ridiculousness has this sort of nastiness associated to it that, yeah exactly utopia that brings a threat <laughs> they always go wrong the object. So, if I said the phrase "release the buttholes" to you, what does this mean? Bring it on, Louise. Release the buttholes, Andrew. <laughs> so, I've I've not seen either buttholes. actual music. I've not seen buttholes. I've not seen I've so, I've not seen the musical Cats, and I've not seen the. <laughs> Sorry. I, I I'm seriously worried that I'm going to have to watch the film Cats for research. Because <laughs> I'm working on this chapter on um, ridic- I got invited to do a chapter on ridiculous animals, and I came. I pitched a couple of different ideas. I can't remember what I did, what I said. But the the editor came back with like, you should read this book, which is the Life and Opinions of Tom Cat Murr by E. T. A. Hoffman. It's a novel which is the auto- It's half the autobiography of a cat called Murr. The conceit is that Murr writes the autobiography on a real biography of this guy called Chrysler, who was a sort of partially autobiographicalized version of, of Hoffman. And you get like fragments of the Chrysler biography 
interspersed with a full autobiography of the cat. And I'm, the chapter I'm doing is, is about sublimity versus ridiculousness in that book. But I also want to talk about, there's a great, there's a play called Puss in Boots by Ludwig Tieck, uh, another sort of early German romantic. It's all about breaking the fourth wall. So they, they have a, mm. there's a scene where members of the audience comment on how awful the play is. And the play, <laughs> stops and the and Tiek or, or a version of Tiek comes out and goes no 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 you're just you're not understanding this like l- let me explain the play to you um so the, the while while the kind of the, the fairy story of Puss in Boots is going on they're having all these kind of meta theatrical um tricks and that it does the thing about um romantics liking the idea of nature not nature itself because they have um the king is sort of looking it, he does like a tour of his um estate because he's sort of i think he's worried about puss in boots like usurping him and he climbs up a tree to sort of to get a better view of his kingdom and he he, he gets covered in bugs and is really disgusted and his daughter is like oh that's because you, you we've not idealized nature yet <laughs> really it's really cool so i want to talk about TX Puss in Boots, and I want to talk about Hoffman's Murr, and then sort of more and more cats came out of the woodwork, as they were. So there's a book, there's Christopher Smart's uh, poem, Jubilate Agno, so Rejoice in the Lamb, has a whole section called For I Will Consider My Cat Jeffrey. And there's a whole, sort of whole section about <laughs> I mean, um, Jeffrey. Old Parsons' book of practical cats seems like a, mm-hmm. a striking it, omission. Just saying. It's, it's heading towards that, and then, and then having taught the the musical cats mainly because i i kind of feel like i want to have it in because that the that review that i i dug out that started our conversation about the butthole cat the butthole part of cats <laughs> is, is so good i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna find it because it's on my, just, on my uh, just for those listening who haven't heard about the butthole cat edit there is a, an internet rumor that initially the cut of cats there's a cut that exists where the cats were given buttholes and it was someone's job to edit out all the buttholes somewhere there is this just a butthole butthole edit edit of cats which you sent me a joke version of earlier today and it's cursed it's truly cursed (laughs) the film's horrific anyway i loved it so much it was so awful okay this is long but can i do the can i read the review because it's so good yeah do it that's a good review well, let me see if I can get to it again. When I was 13, my parents started breeding cats, Burmans, seal point Burmans to be precise. I would wake and be surrounded by cats and all the cat life, all, all that the cat life entailed. Kitten cats, male cats, female cats, cat cages, cat shows, cat breeding. Always the breeding, the eternal life cycle of the cat burned into my retinas, the yowling, the prowling, the fucking. When I was 25, I hung out with some furries in Hamilton. Charming folk, I really liked them. Loved Disney films, adored My Little Pony. They got turned on by putting on dog suits, fox suits, cat suits adults all yelling prowling fucking i'm 37 now i've just seen cats the movie i've never seen the stage show but i know the songs i get the gist big songs big numbers this film is something else i'm 13 again i'm 25 again i'm at my parents house hearing cats fuck i'm watching a furry put on a cat suit i'm watching idris elba nude as a cat his ass is sticking out i'm watching all the cats legs constantly spread gyrating grinding growling yowling prowling fucking this is the worst thing i've ever seen this is what death feels like this is the worst ketamine trip this is awful this is not a film this is chaos this is a cgi from the salt scorpion king i don't know if i'm five hours nothing matters anymore this is the death of all things fuck it that is david harrier i should writing a review that his um, newspaper refused i believe before the movie came out there were all these like videos with the cast who were like, "Oh yeah, it's going to be something special. Like they're going, like it's really, really feel like it's going to, it's really important. Like they were deadly serious about this, but they'd obviously not seen 
what they looked like. They were obviously <laughs> like they were obviously talking prior. It got sort of released. I think it was a thirty six hours before its premiere that they finished editing, which is why they missed like Judy Dench's hands and stuff, where she has human hands, and you can see her wedding ring and just all the things. It is incredible. <laughs> there's there's also a scene where um, Sir Ian McKellen, you know you know esteemed actor sir ian mckellen stops and just go, looks up and goes meow 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 and it's just the worst thing you've ever seen <laughs> i love it so much um but yeah the um so they'd obviously never seen it um and then afterwards everyone was surprisingly quiet about it <laughs> and it's just and it's also brilliant to see um so jennifer Jennifer Hudson, but she's obviously, because she plays Grisabella, so she sings Memory. So she's obviously really fishing for that Oscar. But the fact that her performance, she had no idea what the CGI would look like. She's really gunning for that Oscar and she's all snotty and disgusting and she just looks ridiculous as the cat. Oh, does she go full Anne Hathaway? Oh, yeah, she goes full Anne Hathaway. She is fishing for that Oscar, but doesn't realise that her CGI is just going to... And, you know, she has a butthole <laughs> apparently in one edit. Honestly, I love it so much. I'm really feeling it because also you can talk about the sublime and the ridiculous and this idea about what is human, what is not. Like the, true, this, the, the, the way that the cat's costumes and stuff, like there's a very fine line between humanity. This is reffable. This is reffable. <laughs> and I mean, I'm happy to contribute any thoughts on Cats the Musical. It is my... One of my specialist subject areas. <laughs> we'll just take, we'll just have a, like an interview section. We were doing like this lecture training workshop like back at Glasgow and we had to do like a five minute test lecture. So obviously, uh, this is like teaching skills workshop and it was it was just a load of shite. But basically, um, <laughs> we we promised each other that we would pit, we do these ridiculous lectures. So like... I remember there being like a couple of serious people like doing my PhD and why it matters. And it's just shite. And so I, I did mine on cats and I did uh, <laughs> cats musical T.S. Eliot's political feline. And uh, I gave a, a lecture about how uh, McCavity is basically an anti-Semitic scapegoat and why Mungo Jerry and Rumble Teaser are carriers of Marxist philosophy. Um, why? I feel this has just become a cat's podcast. Cats. <laughs> <laughs> like as someone who has not seen it, has not watched it, will not watch it, will not listen to it. I've had to be very quiet the last like 12,000 minutes. Like. I've, read, I've read Old Possum's book of Practical Cats. That's the closest I've got to cats. The <laughs> Both Andrew and I are just sitting here being like, oh God, I wish you'd stop talking about fucking cats. <laughs> not nodding and smiling went on in this, in this, this non-video podcast. Honestly. You need to make cats happen in your life. It's important. <laughs> I don't think I've reached that stage of desperation in lockdown. Yes, Not well, quite yet. Is that for lockdown four or five? Got to save something. <laughs> My cat loves it when I pick her up and make her dance to Jellicle Cats. She thinks it's the best thing ever. She hates me. She does. She hates- <laughs> Another fun thing you can do with a cat is... <laughs> If they're being particularly horrible, which my cat is a lot, you've just put a memory in the background and film them looking angry at you. Lockdown fun. It's good. I think I am now remembering that you ma- you managed to con me into doing a lecture on cats and modernism. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did. I'm, I'm finding my old, my old lecture slides. I, I titled I it from cats to the Fisher King. Um, <laughs> it did not go down well. <laughs> I was cool. 
I once called a let this is how technical I am with PowerPoint, right? You know, you can switch words out so it's the, the words change and, and you can Ooh, do I can't do that. Things. I moved from BDSM to Charlotte Bronte, Sadomasochist, CBSM. Ooh. It was great. Oh yes, very strong. Excellent. Liked it. I bet that took you like five hours to do as well, and you were like pat on yeah, the Yeah, and back. the students were like, what the fuck? <laughs> Now, one of them took a picture and, and was tweeting their friend who did sciences saying, look, this is the, these are the kind of lectures I get to go to. I felt so proud. In doing that, I found a terrible book called Jane Eyre Laid Bare, which is like Fifty Shades of Grey, or it's kind of like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. So it, it takes mm-hmm. the, um, but it, instead of zombies, it's sadomasochistic sex. So it, it takes the literal text of Jane Eyre and adds kind of lesbian sex. That, um, I mean, that sounds great. Red Room, Red Room. I, my whole argument yeah, is that you don't, you don't need to read Laid Bear because the whole the, the book is already implicitly sadomasochistic. Like Jane Eyre get off. Jane Eyre is yeah. definitely into getting whipped. Come on, like she loves it. Like she fucking loves that shit. Right. That's what that's what Mister Rochester sees in her as well, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. like oh, this is, you know she she's going to be okay with my wife. Look at this plain bitch. I can do whatever I want. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> Voice of Rochester there, but it's, it's also why St John Rivers is just the worst because you know that he wouldn't probably wouldn't beat his wife, but just beats himself. That is why Jane must reject St John and go back to well, St John. Oh, sorry, and go back to John Rivers. He's the worst. Like he is, he is my absolute nemesis. St <laughs> John Rivers is the worst. <laughs> hate like worse than Pip, and I hate Pip. <laughs> <laughs> I did the, the the fuck boys of romanticism. What like, like give us your list of literary nemeses. Oh, so Rivers. Top. Number one. one. Pip number two. Pip number two. Oh. Who do I hate? I hate a lot of people. I mean Heathcliff, he yeah, he kills those puppies, but equally, like, I kind of like that he's such but he's kind of self aware in his like dickishness. He's he's just he's awful <laughs> and brooding. He's a but he but he, he's aware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Ode to a Nightingale, John Keats be like... Really quickly, because you are the third podcast that we have mentioned Dorothy Wordsworth. Okay. Is she... A badass bitch, or is she the most boring bitch that ever lived? Badass bitch. Excellent. We'll end it there. That's perfect. (laughs) We've been long my praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother. Faye, you can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter R for ridiculous and the number July 13th, 1798. Our shape this week is a shitting duck. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye.